Hi, I'm Tim Hernandez. Welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. Today's guest is Seshu Foster, one of my personal favorite writers. He's been an influence on me for quite, quite some time now, actually. His work is imaginative and original, and I'm, just, uh, I'm really excited that he's agreed to come on our show here. Uh, Seshu is a poet, a teacher, and community activist who was born and raised in East L.A. His books include City Terrace Field Manual, World Ball Notebook, Atomic Aztecs, and a history of the East L.A. dirigible air transport lines, which we'll be talking with him about today. He's also the recipient of several awards, including the American Book Award, the Believer Book Award, and the Asian American Literary Award. Words on a wire. Words on a wire. Words on a wire. Words on a wire. All right, uh, Seshu Foster, welcome to Words on a Wire, my friend. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> Thanks for having me. No, are you kidding? It's a pleasure and an honor. Like I said, you know, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and and I'll get into some of that backstory as well as we talk, but. Um, you know, I want to, I mean, we're, we're here to talk about your, your new, your latest book, uh, which it's, you know, I have it here. It's a beast of a book. It really is a beast of a book. And in, in preparing uh, for the interview, you know, I honestly was trying to come up with ways, not just like sort of verbally, but ways in, I had to write out <laughs> what I was going to say about this book, but it's just so difficult to describe, uh, but I'm going to try to anyway, and hope I do it some kind of a service. It's a highly imaginative and surreal book, which chronicles a historically fictional account of the East LA dirigible tr air transport lines, which never existed, but could. <laughs> so is that accurate or am I way off or how would you describe that, it? That is totally accurate. <laughs> um, and, and I should add like, uh, it's a, a total collaboration between me and the, the East LA artist, Arturo Ernesto Romo, mm -hmm. um, who does uh, a wild, kind of design and, um, you know, uh, pictorial right. vision uh, incorporated into the book also. Yeah, and we'll, and I'll ask you more about um, his role in the collaboration between you two as well, um, you know, as we go along here. But why don't we kick it off by, uh, you know, having you read an excerpt for the listeners. Okay. Um, so, uh, well, maybe I could, I could set up with a little intro, as I mentioned. Sure, it's, sure. The book is a collaboration between me and the artist Arturo Romo. Uh, and we initially started by doing um, kind of historical research or, or whatever, driving around uh, East LA, researching historical sites. Oh, like the, the CSO, the Community Service Organization headquarters where uh, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta got their, got some of their training by, um, I think his name is Fred Voss um, or Fred Ross. Fred Ross. Um, and, and other sites and that, that building later became uh, a music venue, a punk venue where um, East LA punk bands like Los Illegals and The Brat played. Um, and we were going around um, researching these uh, historical sites and mapping them out on, a, on, a, on driving and walking tours 
of a website that is that is still up called the elaguide.org. Um, and so that's the the URL for it. Um, and so we were doing this nonfiction kind of research, uh, you know, promoting these uh, little known or, or unknown historical sites in East LA. And, uh, and as we collaborated in this um, nonfiction kind of, um, uh, what, nonfiction kind of research, we started exploring the idea of, of mythologizing some of it into a fictional uh, project. And that's, that's what ultimately became Eladat, the, the novel. Um, and uh, yeah, so this excerpt um, that I'm about to read uh, actually describes something that we um, uncovered during our, uh, during our research. Mm -hmm. um, related yeah related to the the themes of the book um so what about the story of bessie coleman she was the first american to get an international pilot's license which she got in france because they refused to teach her how to fly in america and the first african-american woman to get a pilot's license back in 1921 but she could only make a living doing dangerous stunt flying and that killed her in 1926, she lost control of her plane and it spun out and threw her at 2,000 feet above the ground. So she died. She was 34. Of course, she was the inspiration for the Bessie Coleman Aero Club. Now, this is basic history of the skies of Los Angeles. So you're supposed to know this already. The Bessie Coleman Aero Club was founded in 1929 by William Powell here in LA, where Powell learned to fly because the LA Warren School of Aeronautics was the only place in the country where he was allowed because he was black to take flying lessons. Powell, who owned a chain of five gas stations, became a licensed pilot, navigator, and aeronautical engineer. He started an airplane company, Bessie Coleman Aero, to lay the foundation for a new future for African-Americans. In his book, Black Wings, Powell wrote, there's a better job and a better future in aviation for Negroes than in any other industry. And the reason is this, aviation is just beginning its period of growth. And if we get into it now, while it is still uncrowded, we can grow in, as aviation grows. Powell had a major plan and this was his plan. Negro leaders, why do you sleep? Black men and black women, arouse your imaginations. Act before it is too late. Do not let the aviation industry become completely monopolized by other races who will give you and me only the most menial jobs. Get into aviation now while we have a chance to get black airplane manufacturers, black airplane distributors, owners of black transport lines and thousands of black boys and black girls employed in a great paying industry. That was Powell's plan. It would eliminate continually begging white people for jobs. He started a black aviation newsletter which offered scholarships to black students, male and female alike, who wanted to learn to fly. Everywhere in the nation, black people were discriminated against, excluded, exploited, and oppressed. 
There were lynch mobs, race, racial covenants and real estate, John Birch and Ku Klux Klan hate groups, segregated schools and Jim Crow laws. Powell said the aerospace industry that was just beginning would allow Negroes to slip the surly bonds of the earth, leaving all that horrible bullshit behind as black people literally flew into the future. His plan almost worked as Bessie Coleman Aero Clubs formed in major cities across the US. If only the Great Depression hadn't ruined his businesses and Powell himself died of lung failure caused by injuries from poison gas in World War I. Powell's vision faded away too and has been forgotten now for the most part. These people and their dreams all became part of the history of the skies over Los Angeles. All right. <clears throat> so the book kind of purports to, uh, to record the history of, a, of an organization like that. Right. And, and, you know, I, I can't help but ask this about what you just read specifically. There are so many, you know, there are so many little like factoids, uh, both real and both and invented. Uh, you know, um, or actually, I, I assume some of them I assume are invented. But let me ask you specifically about the one you just read, like that piece of information, how much of that is based on truth? And, you know, how much of that was uh, just a fictional account, a fictional narrative that you created? Um, well, it, I mean, I mean, with the all, of it actually, all of it actually is, is totally, totally uh, fact. Um, right. Yeah, that uh, that that was a kind of long quote that was taken from from uh, Powell's book, right? Uh, and and all of it was true. Uh, he he came here. He started a airplane manufacturing plant um, uh, using the funds that he derived from his gas stations. He offered scholarships and taught black men, men and women in his clubs uh, how to fly. Wow. Um, he had. Uh, uh, an air, uh, he initiated an air show. Um, and I think, um, hmm. I think that the group was called Black Wings, uh, but it was an all black uh, stunt flying show that wow. uh, performed in the San Gabriel Valley uh, out of uh, what was then called the East Los Angeles Airport, which is in. Uh, I think it was in Montebello and uh, some 10,000 people showed up, you know, paying, wow, I don't know bad. what it was during the time, but you know, a dollar or something to watch uh, stunt flying. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, one of his, one of his partners in the, um, in that uh, black air circus was uh, the first, African-American commercial pilot in the, in the United States named James Banning. Right. Uh, and, and we came across this in part because um, we were walking around Evergreen Cemetery, the oldest cemetery in Los Angeles, supposedly, right. according to them. Right. And uh, a non-segregated, one of the rare non-segregated cemeteries. Uh, so there's big sections of white people and um, and Japanese Americans uh, have their corner of the cemetery, but sprinkled among them is all kinds of other people. And James Banning has a very small um, 
headstone in Evergreen Cemetery. Oh, and while I was researching Powell, uh, I found out who Banning was and he was, he was buried there. It says, fly with Banning. And it says Jennings Banning and it has a birth date and death date. Oh, and, uh, and yeah, he died at, at around age 30 in a, in a stunt plane accident. Um, and, and he was buried there, there in East LA. Um, and so there's this whole history that, uh, of hopes and organizations and striving and struggles of, of these people, um, that is, that is basically unknown. And, and so that is, that is what's kind of, uh, mythologized in, in the novel. Right. And, and it's not just this particular community that we're speaking of right now, you know, um, African-American pilots, uh, you know, but but it's you have sort of uh, you've dug up, you know, various histories, which which to me is really kind of like the 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 layer upon layer of histories that are there in East Los Angeles, uh, as even as a microcosm of this country, really, you know, but sort of layers. Absolutely. Layers absolutely. And and. You're involved in this work yourself. Your own your own books are are excavations and recreations of of the what of obscured history. Right, right. And you know, but what seems interesting to me, and this is this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you, was you know, okay, so you so you're going around, and I can see you and uh, and the artist Arturo uh, Romo sort of you know in a car or walking on foot going around seeing Los Angeles, East Los Angeles particularly, seeing these sort of various threads of historical narratives coming forth and learning about these different communities at different times. And then, you know, but, but to corral them into one narrative, right, requires a kind of a, a device or, or a kind of a, um, no, a kind of vehicle, right? And so you've chosen as your vehicle, this idea of the dirigible transport Yes, Tell that's me how right. Did that, how did that evolve? Like, how did you, why that? Why not like a subway train or I don't know, I mean, something else, right? Like why that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, dirigibles were chosen for a couple of reasons. One is because that they're so huge, right? They're, they're sort of absurdly huge. Yeah. They're like flying whales. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the other thing that, that um, made them a, a choice was because they they represent in a in a physical way all the the um, all the hopes of the 20th century that were totally dashed, you know, like when they first uh, originated and were being promoted, uh, mostly in Europe, but also partly in the United States too, right. as a way to make the world smaller to unify it through world travel uh, because uh, lighter than air dirigibles uh, during the 1920s were the um, fastest way to get from Europe to the Americas. Uh, the, the Germans initially flew um, Zeppelin flights right. uh, that only took a couple of days, whereas most uh, Intercon uh, intercontinental travel, right. uh, if that's the way, right way to put it, was was by steamship. You know right, that right. took weeks and weeks to cross the ocean. Right, right. Um, but these but these immense airships could um, make it in a couple of days, and right. so 
uh, it was one of those technological inventions of the 20th century that promised great things and then of course exploded in big fireballs and and uh were were discarded in the trash bin of history as as right. as they say right. so it, so that was partly the reason that it was chosen was because it was an obvious failure of the 20th century ah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That's right. You know, and um, I wanted to ask you something else about, about place, you know, um, because I know that, well, I should say the first book of yours that I read, gosh, this was, this was years ago, um, was a World Ball Notebook. Um, that was a great book. I found it actually at the, uh, I think it was at the Naropa bookstore where I did my undergraduate. It was in the bookstore there and I pulled it out and I was just like, you know, right. I didn't even have the money at the time to afford a book, but I was like, I'm buying this with whatever I got left, you know, like it was that kind of a book, you know, and I loved it. I appreciated it. Um, because it was inventive. Um, but then um, I want to say a little short time later, I picked up City Terrace Field Manual. And after reading that one, that second book, I realized that, you know, I, I declared myself a fan of everything Seshu Foster wrote at that point, you know, I was like, this is, I got to follow his work. Um, but you know, one of the things that's obvious and prevalent in all of your work um, is, you know, a, a sense of place. Can you talk a little bit about how place uh, is why it's important to you? Um, and specifically, I should say East Los Angeles, because that's where you were, that's where you're originally from, where you're born and raised. Is that right? Right. Right. Um, yeah. Um, well, East LA is important to me, I guess, partly because uh, when I was growing up, um, the kind of apartheid imagination in, in literature uh, did not include Chicano literature, right? It, um, really, the only the only dissident voices included in American literature were those groundbreaking African-American writers like James Baldwin, Richard Wright, and so on and so forth. Not even um, Black women writers, but only like Black male writers when I was growing up. And, and the women writers like Sandra Cisneros and uh, Maxine Hong Kingston and um, you know, all the black women writers, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, all these other uh, amazing American women that really broke open American literature for all of us. Right. Uh, were not yet published. Right. And so um, I didn't know if I didn't know if any kind of representation like that would ever exist. Right. And so so I grew up with that. I grew up with a literature that was only white with a few black voices, you know, that felt to me almost like token voices. Right, right. Um, because black writers were sort of pigeonholed into this um, slot of like, uh, we want you to discuss race matters, right. you know, figure out race for us, the white people. Right. Um, and then we'll just write about everything because we're universal. Right. right. Um, but, um, you know, early on, I decided that, that um, in every city, uh, there's a, as a, like a 1950s uh, crime uh, movie said, there's a million untold stories in every city. Right. Um, and, and I definitely felt that was true in, in East LA, you know, like, um, so there's, there's uh, 
yeah, I decided to tackle that in fiction and nonfiction yeah. uh, as best I could. Um, since I felt like uh, it's a, that the lives of people in East LA were a microcosm of, of people uh, struggling and surviving with verve and with uh, grace yeah. uh, in, uh, in oppression and being ignored and, um, and, and doing so, uh, you know, amazingly and beautifully and, and that it's a privilege to be able to document some of that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Words on a Wire, and our guest today is poet and novelist Seshu Foster. We're speaking with him about his latest book, A History of the East Los Angeles Dirigible Air Transport Lines. It's a breath, that's a mouthful. But you know what I loved about it is that you only, uh, in, on the front cover, which obviously our listeners can't, can't see, but on the cover, you use, you know, you uh, actually, yeah, exactly. And the way, that, the way that it appears on the front cover, it looks like a, almost like a Nahuatl word, iladadl, ilada, il, you know, ilada or something, you know. Uh, yeah. how you pronounce that but it that that was my first when I first saw the book out uh, the the cover of it that's exactly what I thought actually my initial thought was oh that's a that's a Nahuatl I wonder what Seshu's doing with the with the Aztecs again <laughs> you <know>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> because your book Atomic Aztecs I was like what is he doing there you know but yeah it's, and then I and then when I read the entire uh, title I said oh, okay I see yeah <laughs> but um I want to talk with you I want to kind of talk now about um your collaboration with the artist Arturo uh, Romo as well um, because, you know, one of the things that to me that was probably one of the most impressive aspects of the book is the verisimilitude that you use. It's incredible. Um, you know, the flyers, the photography, um, you know, even even there are actual like tokens that, that were used for this dirigible <laughs> transport. Man, those are like fantastic. And I was like, wow, he really went all out like on just making this so such a real, real world, uh, you know, um, all the way, all the way through from beginning to the end, from cover to cover, that's just the feeling of the book. So the visual element, very important, obviously, and vital to, to the believability, um, yeah. or, or as Mario Vargas Llosa calls it, the persuasiveness of, of this story. But um, how much of that was in collaboration with the artist Arturo, uh, Arturo Romo, but also just, uh, or did you have other collaborators as well, designers or? Well, originally we, we we wanted to open it up to uh, you know a bunch of friends and colleagues writers. There's a few pieces in there by other people, um, but not too many. Um, you might uh, you might guess that um, that asking people to to uh, devote devote their lives to writing your book <laughs> is not going to fly. <laughs> so it, so it basically ended up to be Arturo and myself and um and actually the uh, work that Arturo weaves throughout the book yeah. the chapter headings the yeah. the um pho photographic digital photographic inserts yeah. the um appendices at the back yeah um are just the tip of the iceberg of what Arturo is producing all the time. Wow. Um, he wow. produced, and, and some of it is available um, online uh, on YouTube or through the City Lights um, website. Nice. He has uh, videos that he produced. He produced um, video commercials for, for the dirigible lines. Nice. Um, 
he produced uh, sort of 3D um, graphic representations of some of the characters, uh, you know, that, that couldn't be re reproduced in, in the book. Right. Uh, he made things like those tokens. Yeah. Uh, which are all actually uh, a digital creation that they don't exactly, they don't really exist in, in, <laughs> uh, in 3D yeah. space. He did it. He did those things on the computer. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and yeah, he, he, um, uh, yeah, he, so, yeah, he produced uh, all kinds of work that uh, inspired a lot of the story, but didn't actually make it into the book itself. Yeah. Um, and so a bunch of my prose that's in the book, yeah. it takes off from work that he did that is not um, represented in print. Wow. Um, but it was one of the privileges of, of working with him was, was that I was allowed to um, get a bunch of his work in print because right. um, Arturo uh, mostly works with um, community groups uh, after participating in a LA County um, art exhibit called um, uh, Phantom Sightings Art After the Chicano Movement. Uh, he was part of that group show. He decided to um, sort of drop out of museums and galleries and focus his work instead uh, on the communities in East LA. Uh, so for example, producing the work of the, um, the Northeast Alliance, which is an anti-gentrification group in Northeast Los Angeles. Right. So he produces their, um, their newsletter. He participates in street theater and street actions with them. Wow. Um, and uh, so a lot of his work is is um, sort of community based and therefore under the radar. It never it never achieves visibility, uh, you know, outside of the community. Right. And right. so so part of my impulse was in collaborating was to promote some of his great work. Yeah. Uh, in a broader a broader. I mean, venue. yeah, it, it I mean, I can't imagine this book without any of the images, you know, or even just with just a few images, it just would not be the same experience. You know, uh, the book is very visual. And in fact, I at some point, even in the beginning, I attempted to read it linearly, you know, and then at some point, I just said, you know, don't make sense of it that way. Just enjoy it like as if it were sort of an archive box. Uh, on this idea of dirigibles. And so I started to bounce around and then I found it really rewarding. I found it like, I mean, I'm just, I'm just the kind of person I've always been who loves looking into family boxes, archive boxes of photos and letters. I mean, you know, I think a lot of us feel that way, but that's the feeling I got. Um, I had to keep reminding myself that this isn't real. You know, I kept saying, but it could be, this is incredible, you know, uh, you know, so I, I enjoyed the read in that way. Um, but you mentioned some of the videos that Arturo Romo did, um, you know, like commercials, or I mean, I call them commercials, because I, I'm thinking of them, you know, from that time period, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, maybe, they are like commercials, right, commercials, although they would be book trailers, I guess we'd call them now, but sort of more like commercial. So there's this sense that you have of, of, blurring the line between the real and obviously the imaginative or the imagined. Um, and you've been doing this, I know, because I, I follow you on social media for quite some time. Um, 
you know, you've been, uh, sometimes you'll post, you would post, I mean, this I'm talking about four or five years ago, I think you would post something about a dirigible transport and then it would, but you wouldn't give us any context in the social media post. It was just this post. And so what I loved about it was because there was, it was so ambiguous. I would not, I was never sure in the beginning, is he serious or is this like a joke? I don't know what to, I love that aspect because it was intriguing, you know? Um, but, but you've done that I know you've worked on it from that sort of angle for, for years now. And now with Arturo, you know, his collaboration doing, you know, adding to that sort of same sense of blurring that line. Why is that important for you to kind of get that into the popular sort of, uh, you know, radar, if you will, you know, to, to, to make, to sort of blur that line between, you know, is this real, is this imagined, is this imagined or is this, uh, you know, what is this, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... It is important, and part of this sensibility comes directly from Arturo, who was very interested in uh, the Native American trickster um, mm -hmm. tradition, mm -hmm. uh, the like coyote stories, where coyote is both a fool but uh, a wise kind of fool, and um, and there's something engaging there where. Um, where that trickster is allowed to say things about our condition that if you're trying to be serious, you, you're, you're not allowed to like speak to that kind of register of human, human uh, experience that uh, remain that absurdity of human experience that is always part of, of our lives. Um, you know, even as we go about the, the you know, rough and tumble life and death right. struggles of, of surviving, um, there's often this element of, of absurdity uh, creeping, creeping in. Um, and, uh, and I think also in part, it's a way of um, engaging the, the subconscious. So where, when we research the um, nonfiction uh, historical sites in East LA and posted some of them uh, as driving and walking tours, which are, there's like little maps, downloadable maps on that website that people can do to um, take in these sites. We also wanted to engage in the, like the, the more subconscious strivings of, of people because people don't just simply exist in like the, the conscious, uh, surface streets of, of their mind. They also have whole, whole other uh, untold uh, struggles and strivings that don't necessarily manifest in um, in the official histories of 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 place, but are still yeah. important. And so we wanted to like engage in that, and the and and the dirigible is a kind of metaphor for that it floats over the landscape but it's actually a metaphor <laughs> it is it's, it's incredible session and unfortunately we're out of time already i, I can't believe it but but i want to sneak in one more question um because i just have to uh, this book from the opening radio sort of scene to the very end to me suggests uh not only suggests but it just felt to me like it's begging to be adapted onto the stage or even in film is that something you're considering 
Um, I haven't had offers about that yet. <laughs> I'd love to see it on stage just because it's so rich and layered and, and you know, it has so much humor, just everything. It's so vibrant, uh, you know, to me. There's definitely, there's a definite visual uh, element to that. So it definitely could, you know, be adapted into like a graphic novel or. Yeah, absolutely. An animated series of some kind. Well, I hope I hope so, and uh, yeah, I hope it, I hope it happens. You know, let me know if you need a collaborator. <laughs> Absolutely, Seshu, man, it's been an honor talking with you. Uh, and you know, I, I'm a fan, like I said, of all your books, and and I wish you nothing but love. I'm you. a fan of yours, Tim. Thank oh, you for your work. Thank you. I it's it's that. doing great stuff. Thank you, brother. I, I appreciate that so much from you. I do. And uh, as well, good luck to you and Arturo on this book. And uh, looking forward to talking with you again soon, my friend. All right. <clears throat> all right. Thanks Take very much, Tim. I'd like to thank our special guest today, poet and novelist Seshu Foster. Be sure to pick up his latest book, A History of the East L.A. Dirigible Air Transport Lines, out with City Lights Books. also want to thank our producer, Sam Casiano, and our podcast producers, Claudia Flores and Ileana Pichardo. That wraps it up for today's edition of Words on a Wire. We'll see you next week, same time, same place, right here on KTEP 88.5 FM, your NPR station for the Southwest. 